Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The uniform thing I hear, John and Lisa, which is people question the Chinese statistics, and it leads to a timely conversation with Meredith Sumter. She is with Eurasia Group, and she joins us now with a huge scope on the Chinese language of the media and the party in China. Meredith, what do you glean within the study of the Communist Party right now? How scared are they? How in control are they? Great to be with you, Tom. I would say that the Communist Party is resolute and remains in control uh, and are working very hard to put out a narrative of success, even as we have um, both domestic Chinese uh, on the ground as well as international experts beginning to poke holes um, in the narratives that the leadership has put forth. Meredith, there is a question about China's relationship with uh, third world countries or developing nations where you end up as uh, with China as the biggest lender and the biggest provider of economic growth. How much has China lost clout as it takes a harder line with some of these loans that have been secured by oil and other resources throughout the world? How much clout have they really lost or are they actually gaining in terms of global leadership? Lisa, I would say that China is uniquely positioned as one of the few countries that is proactively giving aid. So while that aid is not without politics and not problematic, recipient countries are in need, and they're going to take the resources from whence they are are coming. Uh, So coming out of this coronavirus, at Eurasia Group, we think a lot about what the post-world order is going to look like. And for sure, the U.S. is losing competence and is not going, no longer going to be the power to which all countries turn. At the same time, we do expect that Chinese global influence will increase, but, at, but this is not a, a leadership that is looking to lead the global order. They're just looking to lead China in China's own interest, and I think that's an important distinction. So they will be more influential, including over U.S. allies and within international institutions, but no one is going to be in a leadership position. And this is critical because this lack of global leadership is really what has allowed the virus to spread so rapidly and clearly across the world as it has this year. A lot a lot there. Let's, let's unpack a little bit of it uh, and talk about some of the information wars that we have seen with China trying to uh, sort of push the narrative that they've been ahead of this, very transparent and actually very helpful in providing aid to Italy and to the U.S. in the form of respirators and masks, and the U.S. claiming that China has not been forthcoming enough with the data. How does that factor into the post-coronavirus world order, if at all? Lisa, I would say that the, the lack of transparency is, is something that many countries actually expect uh, coming out of China. And the aid, while problematic, at least there is some aid. So China will continue to use that to its effect. But look, the risks that Eurasia Group identified at the beginning of this year are top risks, uh, including with U.S.-China, are still in play. And most of them get significantly exacerbated by this level of stress on the international system. The risks that are associated with coronavirus 
while acute for many of the developed countries that we've seen in Europe and now the United States, they are going to be even worse for emerging markets, in some cases threatening widespread social and political instability, as well as large and lasting economic losses. Now, China is an outlier there. And China will remain an, a, a country that is looking to aid others. And those countries are going to need that aid. So, again, it's not going to be without politics or, or, prob, or, or problems at all. But these countries are going to be in significant need. And it's unclear that, the, that international institutions or developed market economies that are uh, tied up battling their own coronavirus uh, and downward pressure on their own economies are going to be able to deliver. Meredith, many companies, think tanks, investor committees are asking themselves similar questions at the moment. And one of those questions is about the future and what the future looks like as things open back up again. The future relations between the United States and China. I get the feeling that we're just sort of covering things up a little bit at the moment, making out that things are okay when they're not really okay. I'm wondering what this relationship looks like as we come out the other side. John, we see a significant risk of further deterioration in U.S.-China ties. Uh, now, now, look, the, the most likely trajectory in our base case is for U.S. and China that the two sides will, will do enough to keep that phase one deal from collapsing, but certainly not much more. And no one's talking about phase two. I think the leaders of, of both economies are just focused on getting through this year and focusing on livelihoods of their respective populations. And in that, I think China has been uh, much more structural uh, in its, its approach in ensuring that the mass layoffs that are threatening other developed market and soon-to-be emerging market economies do not necessarily incur, occur in China. Uh, the U.S. may not come out so well, and it, a lot will depend upon how the virus continues to spread or not by the time we reach late May or early June uh, this year. It has been much more of a haphazard approach in the United States between the, the federal and state governments, uh, as well as businesses, SMEs that are the backbone of the U.S. economy, waiting to get the transmittal of fiscal stimulus that was passed um, in, in, uh, in Washington. That's going to be a, a critical watch point. Which of these two powers are going to come out more resilient with, right. their, with their domestic population gainfully employed and healthy enough to push their economies forward. Meredith, one of the advantages here of, of being here in the surveillance studio is I've got the surveillance library next to me, including the history of Tots football. And I just pulled off the shelf Henry Kissinger's On China from a good nine years ago. He talks about the indestructible Deng. Is President Xi indestructible? President Xi is certainly the strongest leader since then, but I do not believe that the Chinese people see him as indestructible. His strength is that there is no other obvious leader to take his place, no other obvious leader to lead. And he continues to hold a command and control structure um, over the leading small groups, over China's, you know, governing, uh, governance authorities. That's his strength. That's his strength. Not indestructible, but he certainly is in a solid position, regardless of some of the dings in China's armor that we're beginning to see over the last couple of weeks. Meredith Sumter, thank you so much with the Eurasia Group. 
I can bring in now another guest, I'm pleased to say, Gabriela Santos, JP Morgan Asset Management, Global Market Strategist. Gabby, great to get you with us on the program. Let's talk about it, shall we, as we wait for Chairman Powell to speak in a couple of days' time. The assessment so far, the Federal Reserve seeing some signs of success? Hi, good morning. Thank you, John and Tom and Lisa. It's, it's great to be with you. Um, so, indeed, I do think that we can really say that this has been a Federal Reserve that's been extremely proactive in terms of policy, extremely creative, and we are starting to see some signs of success. Uh, When we look at the investment grade market, when we look at the treasury market, we are seeing some signs that the worst of the stress in the financial plumbing is probably behind us, and we're now in a phase of normalization. And that's really, really important here because we don't indeed know exactly how long um, the pandemic will last. We don't know how long the social distancing measures will last. It's really important to have this comfort that the financial markets will work properly as uh, we move through the next weeks and months. Gabriella, this is super important. If you do have the sort of diminishing of financial stress, can you just put your full faith in the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government and governments around the world and central banks and buy risk knowing that they will do whatever it takes to support markets and get, this, uh, and get, get the economy through this? I wouldn't go so far, uh, that far, Lisa. I think it's, it's a really important condition to make sure that the financial markets are working properly, but it's not a sufficient condition in terms of really being able to take on risk. Um, and there, I think that's really the missing piece there is much more around the trajectory of the virus. We are indeed seeing encouraging signs in places like Italy, Spain, Germany, New York, but the issue is, and something you were touching on earlier, which is, okay, when, when the infection rates plateau, yeah. what do the next few months look like? I don't think we have a good grasp of that. And I think, unfortunately, right. turning the activity off, you know, that was like a light switch. It was fast. But turning it back on, that's going to be a dimmer. It's right. going to be slow. That's what Asia is teaching us. Gabrielle, partition your clients. Some of them were in the markets. They went down. There was agony. They feel pretty good. They've bounced back three days. How do you counsel those that at one point picked up the phone and called JP Morgan and said, go to cash? What should those people do now in cash? Yes, indeed, Tom. We do have so many different types of clients, from institutional clients to retail clients all over the world. And you know, when, when this first started, really our main focus was trying to understand the sources of volatility and talk them through with our clients. At this point, we're still hearing two very different questions. Um, one from, uh, I would say, more um, the individual, the retail type of clients asking, you know, I'm reading about all these scary numbers, uh, tremendous amount of job losses, tremendous amount of activity contraction. Should I indeed be going to cash? And that's where we remind them that actually – because the market moves have been so violent over the past couple of months, portfolios have already de-risked, right? They've reacted in advance. They have de-risked. Actually, maybe there isn't anything that's needed to be done beyond looking beneath the surface and looking at the quality of companies we own. We also hear from a lot of other clients, and here I would say mostly institutional clients, that are starting to think about the path forward and are starting to ask, when should I be adding risk? What kind of themes should I be thinking about? Now that this economic and market cycle has come to a close, what does the next one look like? And, and that's where we've been having really interesting discussions around international, for example. What have people been saying, Gary? 
on the on, on the international type of class? yeah ah. <laughs> so we've really been trying to think about how the last decade um, was of course a clear US outperformance Europe EM Japan really lagging behind and we've been thinking about actually how maybe the US might be one of the last countries out of this particular situation both in terms of the control of the virus as well as the path of the recovery and so we've been thinking about how far ahead North Asia is, um, how far ahead some countries in Europe are, and also the social safety net that Europe has, which is usually talked about as a concern, is actually something that's really going to be very valuable for uh, speeding up the recovery yeah, here when the time comes. Am I going to buy stodgy value Europe, or am I going to buy the growthiness of America, even if I think America socially or fiscally is going to be behind the eight ball? I think it's a combination of both. I mean, technology growth is not going away. If anything, this experience is even enhancing that um, as we're all becoming tech experts. Um, so I think, I mean, by no means is tech over. And, and that's a big uh, theme for the U.S. and for Asia. But I think that, you know, where a lot of clients have just completely thrown away value, completely thrown away Europe and parts of other parts of emerging markets, I think that's not such an easy call anymore. And if anything, maybe we bring it a bit closer to a neutral, the growth and the value side, the U.S. and the international. Gabriella, we're going to get some earnings reports starting next week. And by all accounts, we're not expecting to get much guidance because how can you give guidance in this kind of scenario? What are you looking for that actually could be useful information from companies that are delivering their first quarter reports? Yes, indeed, it, it is going to be tricky, and it has been tricky already to calibrate earnings expectations uh, for this year. We have seen consensus move down from what was 10% growth at the beginning of January to about minus 4%. Um, but based on our models, if we just throw in the kind of economic contraction we expect, the dollar strength, the fall in oil prices, all those variables, it really does look like we should be looking for an earnings contraction this year of much closer to minus 15%. So there's still a ways there in terms of bringing consensus closer to reality. We are looking for some glimmers in the first quarter, but as you mentioned, unfortunately, mm -hmm. I don't think that we will mm -hmm. be getting that guidance from companies mm -hmm. exactly because things are so uncertain. We need to see how activity resumes and evolves uh, right. beyond, Mar beyond April. Uh, maybe we'll evolve to this Thursday and try to get beyond April as well. Gabriela Santos, thank you so much. J.P. Morgan Asset Management. This is the economist, folks, that all the other economists really, really listen to. When he speaks and when he writes, Mario Draghi listens. William White was at the Bank of International Settlements at the OECD. His seminal papers of 2012 on the history of economics are definitive. They are the papers I give undergraduates who say, help me get smarter. We are thrilled that William White could join us now. William White, what does central banking look like after this pandemic? Well, I... Um... I fear it's going to be more of the same. Uh, and when I say that, what I really mean is that every time really for the last 20 or 30 years when we've had a, a major problem or a, a problem that looks like it's lurking in the, um, in the, uh, the background, uh, the answer has been print the money. And um, I can understand why in the midst of crises people do that. 
But um, this has been going on for such a long period of time that uh, what, I, what I'm very fearful of is one that it won't have the desired effect of re-stimulating the economy. And that two, uh, it leads to still more of these debt problems and financial instability problems that I think uh, actually threaten, our, threaten our, our recovery going forward. So um, what's being done here in terms of reliquifying the markets is, is absolutely the right thing to do. But I hope they can find some way of renormalizing the situation once the economy starts to recover. William, how do they go about doing that when they've just transferred so much more debt over to public sector balance sheets, the central bank balance sheet, the government's balance sheet? We've had this huge transfer of debt. Will they be able to back away from any of these measures? Well, the, um, the, um, the central bank um, can back away to a degree uh, in the measure that the economy does start to turn around and we do start to get some growth. Uh, there's always the possibility of uh, sort of growing your way out of it. It's going to take a significant period of time. One of the things that I think uh, would be worthwhile for governments to do, although I know it's, uh, it's difficult for them to make um, credible commitments about the future, is to say that going forward, having um, uh, raised this level of government debt as a, as a proportion of, of GDP uh, to such high levels, that going forward, uh, they will no longer be following the asymmetric policies that they followed in the past, which is to say, in the past, they always responded with fiscal expansion in the downturn, but there was never anywhere near as much fiscal contraction in the upturn. And that asymmetry led to the government debt ratcheting up and up. We actually do need a kind of asymmetry going forward, but it's a promise to do the asymmetry in the opposite direction which is to, to try to ensure that over time, just as in a certain sense after the war, that over time there will be a gradual, it will be the government's objective to gradually reduce those debt ratios because, um, as everybody's known, I mean, from time immemorial, that having high debt ratios, whether in the public sector or the private sector, exposes you to all sorts of uh, possible problems going forward. William, this is true in theory, and yet in practice, there hasn't been a huge problem that has stemmed from the high debt levels over the past decade. And a lot of people have pointed to this. We haven't seen runaway inflation, even as the U.S. continues to print money and rates have only gone lower. So what's to say that dynamic won't continue? Well, one thing I think you're, you're actually putting your, your finger on, on uh, uh, the, the, the right thing. The markets up until now have been re- have been remarkably insouciant, you know, un- unconcerned about increases in government debt, uh, and that is just a, a, a fact. So that when I sort of look forward, and I think in terms of where's the room for maneuver here, there's more room for maneuver, I think, now on the fiscal side than on the monetary side. And I think even prior to the to the the, the pandemic, there was a general agreement in the literature uh, that we should be moving much more towards the use of the fiscal lever in downturns than the monetary lever. Um, But the market's patience is great, but not infinite. And you can see this, for example, I mean, we saw this during the European crisis, that um, you could get circumstances in which people would say, the market would say, as it said to Italy, uh, no more. 
And it is not impossible that the same kind of thing could happen even mm-hmm. for, for bigger countries. Um, we have seen many examples throughout history, um, and there's all sorts of empirical evidence and books written and whatever, right. of these kinds of nonlinear processes where the government spends huge amounts of money, becomes very, very highly indebted. Everything is fine until it isn't. And uh, that's the kind of thing that I think we should be, we should yeah. be careful of. So use the room for maneuver, but conscious that it, 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 it can't go on forever. I will do this, William White. I will get out the August 2012 paper out on Social Today, folks. It is the definitive economic history of central banking. William White, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Let's get you back to that top story, shall we? In the last 48 hours, equity markets in a better place as the data suggests that perhaps we're seeing some signs of success after some of these big lockdowns worldwide in major cities. To continue the conversation, I'm pleased to say that joining us now is Ron Temple, Lazard Asset Management, co-head of multi-asset and head of U.S. equity as well, and managing director too. A long, 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 long list from Ron Temple on his duties over at Lazard Asset Management. Ron, fantastic to happy, happy to catch up with you as well. Let's just start with the stocks that have been under pressure, and many people were waiting for new cases to level off. We're starting to see that in Europe and beyond. Do you need to see that, or do you want to see evidence that this economy can reopen? Yeah, I think it's I think it's obviously positive we see cases level off, but I think there's a real balancing act here as it relates to the coronavirus. And that if you get too much optimism, uh, you know, not necessarily in the markets, but too much optimism and positive news uh, out in the media, then does that undermine the positive story itself? In other words, if people start to think, oh, the worst is behind us, I can start getting out of my house and go about my normal business, then you might actually have that second wave of infection. So, so I do agree with the comment earlier that we're flying blind to some degree because there's still a lot of unknowns around this virus and around what, how it will behave in warmer weather, whether there will be a second wave. Um, it hasn't even really hit the emerging economies yet in terms of health, the health as- as- aspects of it. Um, so I think there, there, there are a lot of question marks. That said, I mean, the market had sold off a lot. The U.S. was down 35%, and I think it's, it's reasonable to expect bounces. Um, I guess where I'm a little concerned is, again, just trying to figure out how, how do you baseline what the earnings hit will be and how long will that earnings hit last. <clears throat> Is use of cash going to be forever changed? I mean, the basic underpinning and all the different research pieces say share buybacks drift away. Do you buy that, Ron Temple? No, I, I think share buybacks will come back, but I, I do think there are going to be some lasting changes coming out of this uh, in terms of how companies think about husbanding cash. I mean, I, I think we've pushed financial engineering to the limits in the last four, five, five years uh, in terms of trying to goose earnings, even when revenue growth was pretty lackluster. And so I do think companies will think differently about how much liquidity they want on their balance sheet and access to liquidity through funding lines. So there may be a bit, be a bit more prudent approach or more conservative approach to liquidity management, um, but I don't think that's the end of share buybacks. I also do think, by the way, the structure of supply chains is going to change. It's interesting. Uh, last night, the chair CEO and president of Medtronic put out a letter that I think was quite a good letter. But one anecdote they provided is that a single ventilator has 1,500 parts from 100 suppliers in 14 countries. I mean, when you start thinking about complexity of supply chains, we've always thought of that as a positive, but I wonder how many companies are going to be reevaluating that topic as well. So there are these big sort of 
big picture existential questions facing companies. And then there's the more immediate question that we're going to be asking next week when the second when the first quarter earnings season begins in earnest here in the United States. And that is, can you make money in this environment? Are you going to survive? What are you actually looking for, Ron, at a time when the outlooks are going to be big question marks and shrug emojis from a lot of the companies that are reporting? Yeah, I, well, I think I think first of all, you're going to be looking at liquidity and the strength of balance sheets and making sure that companies have the funding they need in case this it, it does not end up being the bull case scenario. I mean, I do worry, by the way, that it, it seems there's an implicit view that this will all be over in a few months, um, which I worry about because to me that's the bull case. So I'm going to want to hear from companies, do they have access to funding? How strong is the balance sheet? What are they doing in terms of basically kind of hunkering down? The other thing I'm going to want to hear is how are they treating all of their stakeholders? I mean, how are they handling employees? Um, Are they basically trying to keep people on and basically support them through this period of time? Because let's not forget, by the way, the labor market was incredibly tight just a few months ago, and you don't want to be losing talented people because when the economy does reopen and come back, um, people are one of the key assets for all of these companies. So we're really being careful about watching how they handle employees and customers. Ron, let's think about what this means for markets. What we have seen over the last couple of weeks is the high-quality areas of the market, whether it's credit or equity, start to stabilize. In fact, start to do a whole lot better in investment-grade credit here in the United States. What are the necessary conditions that you need to see materialize to see this rally broaden out? Um, I think you're going to have to basically see signs that we've – well, when I think about what we need to see to exit this, maybe is a different way to answer that. We need to see much broader testing in the United States in particular – um, so far, we've only tested about 6,000 people per million, actually about 5,800 per million people. That's half of what Italy's tested. That's a third of what Switzerland's done. So we need to get the testing out so we know who's got the disease, even when they're not uh, symptomatic. Number two, we need a therapy in place so that people know that if they go back to work and they do get sick, that the severity of the illness won't be as bad as it has been and that death will be very unlikely. And then three, we need a continuation of the Fed stimulus, and we need a continuation of fiscal stimulus. So, so I think you're gonna, it's going to be several months before you want to move down that quality spectrum. And to be clear, by the way, I generally favor quality. If you look through the cycle, higher quality companies tend to outperform. And when I say quality, I mean high returns on capital. Um, there is a part of every cycle where those lower quality companies do outperform and where you do want to go down the quality spectrum I just think it's too early to make that call right now. I think we're a few months away from that at minimum. Ron, on the balance, do you think people are too optimistic or pessimistic here? On balance, I would say I think it's a little too optimistic about around the health care. It's, it's interesting. I've had conversations where people have suggested that, that the financial crisis was more challenging than this. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think this is basically a, a health care crisis that becomes a financial crisis if mishandled. The good news is I think the central banks have been incredibly aggressive. Uh, the Fed has actually grown its balance sheet $1.57 trillion in the last month, and that does not include $215 billion of mortgage-backed securities that have not yet settled. So effectively, they put $1.8 trillion to work. That's more than they did in all of QE1 or 2 or 3 in, you know, in their entirety. Um, and also, I think the federal government, although it fumbled the ball at the beginning, the $2 trillion stimulus is aggressive. So so on balance, I think people are too optimistic on the healthcare side, and that healthcare is going to drive when we can reopen the economy. Um, where I think they might be not optimistic enough or not positive enough is what the central banks have done in particular and how aggressively they've acted. Hey, Ron, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Ron Temple, that of Lazard Asset Management. 
of the things we're doing here in this pandemic is we're taking advantage of the public health operation at the Johns Hopkins at universities. This is the Bloomberg uh, Public Health School, School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins. And of course, we should say that Michael Bloomberg is the founder of our operation and owner of this television and radio station as well. It is a much larger Johns Hopkins. And today we spoke uh, with a gentleman from their economic division with acute interest in finance and real estate. Here is Alessandro Rabucci, our Guy Johnson and me, in conversation with Professor Rabucci. Emerging markets have been hit very hard by the initial phase of the crisis. We've seen massive outflow of capital <clears throat> from most emerging markets repatriating in the United States. The COVID epidemic is just picking up in emerging markets. As we know, it lasts for about four months and the peak is for two months, and emerging markets are much less capable of absorbing the health dimension of the crisis. They will be put under extreme strain, and we expect to see unprecedented decline in economic activity and possibly widespread financial damages. Professor, you are a world authority in real estate. It's something maybe diffuse, it's out there, it's not something we really can touch. How is the leverage within the global real estate system? Are they exposed as other asset classes were exposed in 1998? At the global level, leverage in the real estate is not as uh, diffuse and deep as in the United States. Typically, in emerging markets, real estate purchases take place on a cash basis. So from that perspective, leverage in the real estate is not necessarily the most important problem. However, research shows that impact in individual communities affected by pandemic can be extremely long-lasting. So certain segments of mega cities in emerging markets may be particularly damaged by the <clears throat> crisis, by the health dimension of the crisis itself. Alessandro, um, can I talk a little bit about what is happening here in Europe? Um, Italy finds itself in a very difficult situation. It's, econo it's economy already uh, sort of burdened with a huge amount of debt. It's likely to take on significantly more. What is your perception of the economic trajectory of Italy and whether or not its debt is sustainable? Italy is in a particularly difficult situation because it was already experiencing difficulty to recover from the global financial crisis. Effectively, Italy never recovered from the global financial crisis and growth was permanently hit by that shock. This uh, new uh, catastrophe will be extremely damaging for the and uh, help is desperately needed, needed from the European community, ideally from the rest of the international community. There is a lot of talk about options for financial rescue through European mechanisms. I think it is the time to consider emergency help from international financial institutions and chiefly the International Monetary Fund, which help other European economies during the financial crisis. Professor Rubucci from the uh, Department of Economics at the Johns Hopkins uh, University. We thank him for his perspective uh, today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. 
Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.